Good afternoon and welcome to Rasslin' Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can also check out Rasslin' Memories outside the FM area at our website, www.radionorthland.org. And you can not only listen to us live right now as I'm speaking, you can check us out in our archives category, we have over five years of wrestling, ma- wrestling memories interviews, some classic wrestling interviews for you. That's available at RadioNorthland.org. And uh, yes, Glenn Brogan with you this week, sitting, flying solo. But let me tell you something. I may not have Mr. George Shire with me, but I'm definitely not alone. I've got one... Uh, main event of a guest today. Our guest uh, is a member of one of the most renowned professional wrestling families in the history of the pro wrestling business. Uh, This is not an exaggeration when I say this. This man's uh, grandfather, uh, Roy Welch, first entered into the uh, pro wrestling uh, arena in 1924 and was followed by 20 other immediate family members. Yeah, yeah, we're talking big time pro wrestling connection here, people. Over the past 93 years, there has been four generations of this man's family that have dominated the mat world, whether it be a pro wrestler, behind the scenes as a promoter, or being the guy with the stripes, the referee. Today, he's with us to share some of his wrestling memories, as well as to do a little business here, too. He's going to inform our listeners out there if they haven't been informed already about his latest venture, the recently launched Studcast podcast. And let me tell you something. Uh, I, I've listened to uh, the, the episodes so far, and there have been nothing but five-star. This guy, I've told him off mic already, he's one hell of a raconteur. And to paraphrase a couple of lines from that classic country song for which inspired his ring name, he had the nerve and he had the blood. There never was a wrestler like the Tennessee stud. A big wrestling memories welcome to our guest, the host of the instant new hit podcast, The Studcast. He's a pro wrestling legend in the pride of Dyersburg, Tennessee. Man, this guy's been there, done that, and sold a few t-shirts along the way and a few other things. I'm talking about the one and only Mr. Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Good afternoon. Welcome to wrestling Memories, sir. Good afternoon. Glad to be here. Uh, uh, I've heard a lot about you guys, and uh, it's a great, great opportunity for me, and uh, I'm ready to talk some wrestling today. I don't care what you got. I got a little bit of knowledge, and I go in all directions, and uh, got family members that <laughs> I don't even know some of their names sometimes, I think, you know? So we've we've come from a big wrestling family, and and uh, I assume that's probably what you want to talk about. Uh, oh, maybe absolutely. I'll just give you a little introduction here for my family member, for my family, uh, for people that don't know. Uh, I come from the Welch family. Actually, there's four families involved. My dad's name is Welch, but he decided to change his name when he started wrestling to Fuller. So I've always wrestled as Ron Fuller, and I have a brother named Robert Fuller. They may be familiar with him. Uh, he's been uh, WWE uh uh, he's been at WCW as Colonel Parker. He's done Tennessee Lee. I mean, he's a, he's he's had his own little run too. Uh, we come from another part of our family, or named Hatfields. Uh, they were they were my grandfather's sister's sons. Three of them. They changed their names when they started wrestling to the Fields brothers. I've got a cousin, a first cousin, whose last name is Golden. He's wrestled as Jimmy Golden. Yeah. I mean, it just goes on and on. All those Fields brothers had sons. They wrestled. Uh, so my my grandfather had four brothers, three brothers, and uh, two of those had sons. They wrestled. I mean, it just uh, we're we're pretty well connected, and uh, we've been there and done that. So far as wrestling is concerned, 
for like you were saying, we've been in it for 93 years now. We still have guys, uh, one of my cousin who is almost 65 and he's still wrestling. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, we don't quit. We just hang and keep going. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this in this avenue that you are taking with uh, the podcast, the Studcast, let me get that correct. It rolls off the tongue quite nicely. The Studcast, I, I think having this big family, uh, we, we've heard dribs and drabs of uh, your family's history, your family's story, but we haven't really gotten any real well-detailed stories. And through this uh, podcast, from the episodes, the Studcast I've been listening to, you really have taken this, uh, your story, your family's story, and... I, I, I can't help but tip my hat to you, sir. You're telling it in, in a way that gets the whole story told. You're not parif- you're not taking little bits and this and little bits of that and editing them out. You're just taking this story, man, and you're telling it from the beginning. You are getting in some great details. I, I can't help but keep complimenting you on how just well well read you are and well well learned you are of your family's history. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I decided when I was going to do this, I, I retired in 1988. I, I went into hockey business, which is up there in your part of the country. You're sure. pretty familiar with that sport. Uh, I had a couple minor league hockey teams. I, I eventually got into ADT security in Tampa area. Uh, so I've done a whole lot of things after wrestling, but uh, I should have done this, this studcast a long time ago. My family, I a lot of people call them the first family now because mm-hmm. they, we've never told the story. Yeah. All these members of my family, we've never told the story about what we've done for wrestling and how how intricate we've been involved. And, and we've really had an impact on the sport, especially in the South. And that's because my grandfather... Uh, I started my story, my stud cast. Uh, I want to do it in chronological order. Sure. I just said, let me start from the very beginning. And I may take three years, two or three years on a weekly stud cast to be able to get all the way through me and, and on through my son who wrestled too. So we're just, uh, uh, we have a whole lot of information. We, we, I give it in trying the best I can in chronological order mm-hmm. because I don't want to leave anything out. Uh, and I have a whole lot of stories. I come from a crazy family. My grandfather is a prime example, having come from out of the deserts, of the high plains of New Mexico and born in Oklahoma and Indian blood in him and uh, had some tremendous experiences as a young kid. He's left for three months in the southern plains of New Mexico. Uh to herd cows, just to stay with cows so they could come back three months later in the spring and bring him back home at nine years old. Wow. Wired rabbits out of the ground, uh, cooked them with uh, cow cow uh, chips, you know, dried cow, oh, sure. cow, cow manure. I mean, uh, you know, he had a hard, rough, tough life. And from that, he became a wrestler. And in 1924, he started wrestling. And uh, pretty much the rest of its history, we all followed in his footsteps and we have had had an impact uh, on on wrestling, particularly in the South. My dad took us to Arizona when I was in high school. We've had some Western excursions. Uh, if you're a wrestler, you're going to see a lot of the country and a lot of the world. And I did that in particular. I really spent a lot of time wrestling Australia, Japan, mm-hmm. the Caribbean, Canada, Mexico, 
uh, all over, all over uh, Europe. Uh, I've been on five continents. So I've been, I've been there and I've seen a lot of different wrestlers and got a pretty good, pretty good knowledge of, of who talent is and who talent isn't and what names are, where to find them and what countries they come from. You know, I'm, I'm pretty knowledgeable about wrestling, I have to admit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you were also, you had a chance to grow up and uh, eventually compete and become a promoter in the, uh, the the real life's blood of the territory days. I mean, you got to see it at its most strong, at, at its strongest, and then you got to kind of see the tail end of it when McMahon and expansion started to kind of swallow up some of the talent across the country. So you really uh, were very fortunate, both as a young, young child and as an adult working at that time during the territory, just from all the knowledge and all the places you can go in the the personalities both in the ring and in the front office that you encountered through those years oh yeah extremely lucky i mean you grow up in that sport and you really have a you really know the sport you have a feel for a type of of lifestyle that no one uh, i don't care what kind of athlete is there's no athlete on the face of the earth that has the the ups and downs and the trials and the tribulations of a professional wrestler. It's really amazing lifestyle. It's a wonderful lifestyle. Uh, after I retired in 88, uh, I, I realized, you know, just how fabulous it had been for all those years. And my grandfather going back to him just as this to give people an idea of all the, what type of character he was. He taught the first professional wrestling bear to wrestle in the thirties. <laughs> And, and that bear had all of her teeth and all of her claws, something that they never do anymore. He did not pull her teeth and he did not pull her claws. So in essence, he had to be meaner than a bear to make it happen. And, and he was truly that. He was meaner than a bear. Mm-hmm. And, and on your uh, Studcast episode, you talk about how we trained that bear. And, and like I said, this was not really the most protected bear for the wrestler who, would, uh, you know, so this was definitely one of those things while you trained the bear, but you also had to develop a lot of trust with the animal and also kind of to let them know who's boss. And boy, tougher, tougher than shoe letter. It, it takes that type of man to, uh, to, to train a bear and especially to get the bear to do spots. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to think that when you're, when you're working with a bear a bear is like any other animal. Sometimes he's going to want to do what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, I, I asked my granddad, you know, I said, how do you, I, I asked him originally, I said, how do you do that? How did you get the bear to mind you and to listen to you? And he said, I slapped him. And, <laughs> you know, I just, I couldn't put that together as a young boy. He probably told me this when I was eight, nine years old. And, and I just, I said, I thought bears slap people. And when they do, they slap their heads off or, you know, mm-hmm. they, they kill them. They kill a person by just slapping them. And he said, yeah, but he said, I got my bear when she was young. And, uh, and I started tra- training her and, uh, and, and disciplining her like a, she was a child at, at an early age for her. And she was scared of me. So he made the bear scared of him. And he kept her that way. She became an 800 pound. She was a black bear and weighed 800 pounds. She was a monster. And he just, she was horrified of him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The bear almost killed my dad. At 12 years old, the bear got a hold of my dad in front of a bunch of young boys. He was showing off in front of a bunch of young boys. And, and the bear used to do on the end of her match, 
Roy, that was my grandfather, would give her a Coke, a bottle of Coke, and she'd sit up on her rear end and drink the bottle of Coke, and the fans loved it. It was just the end of the, the show, basically, the, the exhibition of wrestling the bear. And my dad did that one time. He had some boys there was watching him, and he took the Coke bottle, and they had no Coke in it. He put water in it. He never thought about it. And my my the bear was so so scared of Roy that Roy would stake her out in the backyard and uh, and have no 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 muzzle on her no no claw, no paw no mittens over her claws and paws and uh, so my dad got too close to her he gave her the bottle she sat up on her butt she realized it was water she dropped it she snatched him and and uh, darn near killed him I mean I wouldn't be here talking to you today <laughs> if my granddad hadn't have been home that day and he he came around the house and screamed at her and you know, and, and uh, she did some pretty big damage to my dad as a 12-year-old kid and tore his thigh muscle out of his body and really tore him up with her claws and, and, and would have killed him, was trying to kill him. And he was a pretty tough kid, too. He got his fingers in her mouth and kept her from being able to bite him in the stomach that she was trying to bite him in the stomach. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we come from a strange background. Uh, it's It's pretty amazing that... Uh, that he's still alive. And, and then he raised my brother and I, as we get into that, as the stud cast progresses, we are going to get into how we were raised. And I think people are going to say, dang, uh, y'all had it rougher than he did in the New Mexico desert. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, uh, we, we come from a strange group and, uh, and it's, it, it's helped us. And I guess in being wrestling in the wrestling profession, it's made us tough. And uh, that's a part of being being in that profession. You've got to be tough. Mm -hmm. And it, it's we've uh, we pretty well uh, seen and done it all. One or the other of us, or one out of the twenty or more of us, uh, we've all we've all uh, paid our dues. Mm -hmm. And this is one of many stories that you'll be sharing on your stud cast. We're talking with Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, and. I think that, you know, by doing this chronologically the way you are in, in our hour plus installments, I, I have to ask, ask you about, do you find this process of putting your history to out there in audio form a little less daunting and more entertaining than, say, you know, sitting down and putting it all together in a book? I mean, there's it's a, a bit more of a freeing feeling having less pressure to cram so much into a book because, you know, books, they always want you to, an editor wants you to edit this and edit that. With this, it seems like you get to be a lot more freeing with, with your content. I, I, it's it's pretty amazing. I really enjoy it. I have a guy that uh, that does the program with me. Mm -hmm. His name is Tony Basilio. He's a big sports figure in the Tennessee area. He does Tennessee football, uh, and he he's a, he's really great at at just letting me have free reign with it. Uh, we actually sit down and we do these broadcasts. We sometimes do three or four in a row. Uh, we did four programs the other day, each one around an hour and four hours and 17 minutes. We had no prep. He says, what are we doing? I said, w you just turn me loose. And uh, and we did four hours and four hours and 17 minutes. We took about a three-minute break between each program, and we just rolled into the next. I don't even lay out. I lay out the the most basic format for myself. I want to tell this. I want to remember this story, that story. If you've listened to them, I tell a lot of stories. It's not just historical. And I try to make it historical as well. I want 
people to people people don't really know how wrestling got to where it is now and they don't really know about how the territories were developed and all of that is all history family history for me and i rode with my grandpa many many years starting at about six years old up into my teens and he just really we talked uh, every trip and when you wrestle you're in a car a lot back in the old days you're riding somewhere and you got plenty of time to talk and he was very nice he treated me great i had plenty of questions and luckily i remember a whole lot of those answers and i just got a, a head full of stories so i mix in a little wrestling history with some actual stories and I think it makes for something. Well, the, we've done four, we've had, we've dropped four on my website so far mm -hmm. and the comments and is just astronomical. I mean, the comments the people are just, I've never had a bad comment yet. Everyone says, gosh, you're a great storyteller and what you're doing is wonderful for wrestling historians. Uh, I think, um, I'm on to something here, and everybody tells me that. I've been doing Jim Cornette. I've done all kinds uh, of 605. I've done lots of different podcasts. And when I finish, most of them are like, gosh, Ron, that's unbelievable stuff. Nobody's got that kind of stuff. So so if, if fans haven't listened to it, I think they'll find it interesting. It's different than, than the normal podcast, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Does it just make you feel good inside, too, to know that, uh, you know, you're, you, you, you stepped away from the pro wrestling business. You got into other ventures, including hockey and, 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 you know, the security business. But what is it like now? You can come back in 2017 and you're getting the big pops. I mean, look at this. When you think about the podcasting landscape, there's a lot of podcasts out there. But there's some really good ones from guys like yourself and, and Austin Idol, guys who we haven't heard from in quite some time and who fans really are relishing to hear their story their perspective on things and in your case your perspective and your the wonderful links to the many branches of your family tree so this this is a wonderful welcome back for you guys i mean le legends uh you know winners come and go but legends are forever i think is the old term well you know i keep i keep saying uh you know to people around me i go i think i'm becoming relevant again you know and that's kind of what it is uh, you know you go away for 30 years and then all of a sudden i come back and it's like people are just accepting me. It's amazing. I did not know how many people still remembered me and how many people were in, would be interested in what I have to say. And it's very humbling. I mean, uh, Studcast is just caught on fire. It, I'm getting so much audience from outside, from places I used to wrestle, Australia and Japan, uh, England, uh, a lot of places uh, outside the country are I have a pretty amazing audience from internationally, and it's just really thrilling for me. I'm very pleased with the reaction that I'm getting, and I love the storytelling. I, it gives me an opportunity to to empty out my head kind of in a way that, you know, all that stuff's been stuffed in there for all those years. And I'd, and I'd like to say I could have written a book, but I actually like being able to tell a story because the book can't tell the story away you're you you can audio wise you just there's just no no way to com compare the two
Now, you've mentioned the feedback that you've received uh, from from listeners, and it's been uh, you've been batting a thousand in essence. Uh, what what's the feedback? Have you heard much from your extended family since you've decided to take this step and, and tell the story uh, of the relatives? Uh, you know, your grandparents, your father, your brothers, your cousins. Have you heard from any uh, from the extended family who may or may not have gotten into wrestling since you've decided to? Uh, you know, really put down the family history here in audio form. There, there are still some of us that are, are still uh, still doing some things. I've, I've been going to uh, wrestling reunions. I own my own promotions. When I was 25 years old, I started my first wrestling company in Knoxville, Tennessee, called it Southeastern Championship Wrestling. It became probably the best small territory in the history of wrestling. Tremendous talent, tremendous crowds. I expanded that territory from basically from the Ohio south and all the way to the Gulf Coast. I picked up the entire southern part of the nation uh, from Alabama, Mississippi, into Georgia, into Louisiana. Uh, so so and and I had that company as another southeastern wrestling. Then I eventually combined the two together as Continental Wrestling, a third company, and finished up with USA Wrestling, a company located basically in Tennessee again. So I had four different wrestling promotions and territories that I built and ran, and uh, I bought the South End from the Fields Brothers. One of family members. Uh, actually, if you go along the coast, the Gulf Coast, it used to be called Gulf Coast Wrestling. My father went there to Mobile in 1954. Television was just beginning. He created a territory that ran basically from Tallahassee west to New Orleans into Louisiana, all along the Gulf Coast. Uh, it became a monster territory. My dad was kind of like my granddad. He really had a a penchant for, for really tough wrestlers. He had a penchant for shooters. He's the Vern Gagne type. He's loved sure. that Vern Gagne type, which I do too. It's in my blood, just like it was my grandfather and my dad as well. And he developed a territory there along the Gulf Coast. They drew 40,000 people in 1958 to see him wrestle in the match with the guy named Mario Galento in Ladd Stadium. It's a football stadium in Mobile. They drew monster crowds. Uh, and his whole career was moving from territory to territory, going from those that were dead and within two to three years, making, setting records. And then he would lose his interest because he, he, he wanted to, he just wanted to see those towns sell out. He wanted to light up business again so that, uh, everybody would start talking wrestling and then he'd lose his interest and he'd want to go someplace that's dead again. He was a very strange guy about that, but some of them aren't around anymore. Obviously my grandfather's not here. My dad died in 1960, 1996. So there aren't a lot of the old timers left, but my generation, my brother still goes to these these reunion shows, Continental Wrestling. There's another company now that's trying to do some reunions in the same cities that we wrestled in 30 years ago. When they put us on those cards, they draw crowds in the thousands. You don't see that in independent stuff anymore. 
And I mean, uh, we still seem to people want to come and see it. You know, they just they haven't they've never forgotten it. And that's what's great about the old wrestlers. And where you're up there in the perfect area. I mean, Vern Gagne to me is one of the greats of all time. And he ran a super business. And I'll guarantee you those people up there, they still love their wrestling and they still remember those old stars and that stuff stays in their hearts forever. It's an amazing thing how you can get so almost obsessed with a sport that, uh, that it's a lifetime thing. You, you go to their, go to your grave remembering those guys that you watch wrestle in the, 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s pretty pretty phenomenal thing well i I most uh assuredly agree with you because i I started watching wrestling in the early 1980s and i can remember i can remember stuff that happened 30 years ago and and can barely remember some of my relatives birthdays it's just the way that is soaked into to the brain you know the memories of of getting home at a certain time whether it be on on 605 saturday nights for me when we first got the cable up here in minnesota we'd watch the superstation for for world championship wrestling and we'd watch uh, we'd have uh, canadian television too we'd have Stu Hart stampede wrestling and we had tony candelo who was running a, a promotion up in winnipeg so, I mean, we had that along with Vern Gagne and, you know, with Cable, we started to kind of get our, uh, I guess, a bigger a bigger pro wrestling fix, even up here where I grew up in Lake Bronson, Minnesota, which is only like 20 miles from the Canadian border. I called it, uh, referred it to you as the nosebleed section of Minnesota. But yeah, we were able to find that stuff and I can still remember it. I can go on the YouTube and I can recall the stuff. I could just go five minutes into a tape or five minutes into a file and be like, I can remember this like it was yesterday. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, I used to wrestle. In fact, in the 85, I wrestled for a time on uh, the old Superstation, the 605. Uh, wrestled uh, Ron Fuller. Uh, I was in uh, the Tennessee stud. I used to use both names on there. And it, uh, it's amazing how people, they, they, you can't get enough of it. Wrestling used to be that type of sport that in the old days, there were places in the country where you only saw one program. You didn't get to see everything once the 605 came on, once that superstation popped in there and they're operating off the satellite. I would go into the Caribbean and be recognized getting off the plane in uh, Cayman Islands, as an example. Take a vacation, go to the Cayman Islands and going through uh, customs and the guy would go, yeah, mate, you're Ron Fuller, aren't you? I've seen you. You know, it's like, gosh, how do you know me down here? You know, so it's people just, it was a great sport. It was a great time when the territories were doing well. Uh, and there's so much great talent, so many fabulous wrestlers around the country. And having, having been in that sport and having been able to wrestle against so many of them, Hey, you know, I just start thinking about the guys from from your part of the country, you know, Bockwinkle and uh, Ray Stevens and, you know, uh, the, the Henning, uh, you know, my names that just go on and on, you know, and, and wrestling those guys. My relationship with Bockwinkle goes back to 1970 when I started wrestling. He was a main eventer in, in, in Georgia and uh and Nick Bockwinkle took me under his wing. I I really owe a lot. I owed a lot to Nick Bockwinkle. He was, and in my opinion, he was absolutely one of the greatest wrestlers that ever lived. 
a true technician. And you mentioned Nick and some of the AWA. Uh, did you ever work any shows here, uh, you know, here and there shows? I know that Vern would, uh, from time to time, bring in a few different stars for a few different uh, shows, uh, you know, whether it's a big show in Minneapolis or in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area in the 70s and in the 80s. Did you have a chance to uh, to work a little bit for, for Vern? And, and if you did, what did you think of Vern both as a promoter and just as a, a man himself? Just as a man, yeah. Uh, well, I worked. I was lucky enough to work Denver for him. I worked Denver for him a couple of times. I, I, I never worked in uh, Minneapolis. I did come in Minneapolis, and we and I met with him because I was still in the wrestling business. This was probably uh, late, mid to late '80s, and uh, things were going going in the wrong direction with Vince and. And we met there, uh, Jerry Jarrett, a promoter out of Memphis, came there, and I, came, I was in the meeting. Uh, Vern was at the meeting. Uh, the Von Erichs, one of the Von Erichs came. There were a few guys, guys that were still in the business at the time, and we were talking about how we could help each other. I really respect Vern. I mean, uh, I, always, I always respected him. I never got to meet him until the 80s. But I, I saw him a few times at the National Wrestling Alliance meetings. Um, I was a part of the National Wrestling Alliance. One, of, well, I was the youngest promoter ever to get a a seat in the National Wrestling Alliance. And Vern used to come to those meetings. And my dad and Vern were really close. My dad and Vern got along very well. Uh, I wouldn't doubt that Vern knew my granddad, and I'm, I'm sure he probably did. But I, I never had the conversation with my granddad about him. But my dad and I talked about Vern a lot. Vern was, he was legit. <laughs> I mean, he was Olympic style legit. I mean, you know, he he had it all, and uh, and a damn good shooter, obviously, uh, and and a wonderful person. I mean, respectable. Uh, he had one of those reputations that if he told you something, it was going to happen. And I admired him from afar, let's say, because I didn't get to meet him until late in his career. And, uh, and it was end up being pretty late in my career as well. But he was a great guy. I knew his son uh, very well. You know, in fact, I wrestled in St. Louis with his son uh, a couple of times. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I have a I have some knowledge of the family and having been in wrestling for as long as I have, as long as I was. And because of my father's connection to it and my grandfather's connection to it, I mean, we go back so far. I know something about everybody. You mentioned Stu Hart back there. I love Stu Hart. Stu Hart is a great guy. You know, and uh, I like to do the stew. I got the, the stew and, you know, he's got that voice and he he, he talks real slow and he, he kind of gets, uh, you know, a little bit uh, hung up. Uh, you know, I really, stew to me is a great character. I tell a lot of stew stories because stew is a great guy and, and stew was a character. I mean, uh, he was he was something else. Uh, so, so, you know, I had I got such a varied and broad background when it comes to the sport of wrestling. I, you know, I've dealt with the Montreal people. I've the Jola Dukes out of Montreal and uh, the Rougeaux and uh, I mean, uh, part, different parts of Kaninsky over there in Vancouver. I mean, uh, you know, I know Canada too. And it's, uh, 
So, you know, I can talk just about any subject. If somebody wants to sit down and say, you know, do you know who this guy, do you know that guy, do you know something about him? I usually not only know him, but sometimes I got stories about him as well. It would be almost like an episode we could have where it would be called Name Association. I would just have a list of bullet points and names, and we could probably go for days. Uh, we did that. In fact, uh, I have done, we're producing these studcasts in advance, obviously. And, uh, we did one last, last Saturday. It's probably going to be, I'd say episode 10, nine, 10, somewhere in there in which, uh, Tony does just that. He just says, Ron, I want to, I want to call the match this week. And, and I just want to give you a name and you roll with it. And, uh, he, he he did three names, and we did forty minutes with three names. <laughs> oh wow! So man, there's plenty of plenty of uh, room for other episodes when you decide to kind of take a detour and just do name association. I want to talk about around the '80s, around that expansion time for McMahon, and you you talked about uh, you know the the, la- the latter days of the AWA. You know when Vern stayed in the fight for as long as he could. Wh- okay. It was a difference of just a few years. By the mid nineteen eighties, you uh, your company Continental was was doing some really really big big things and had a, a potential network deal on the line. Uh, what happened between that year or in the mid eighties up until the late eighties when you decided to get out? What were some of the sea changes you started to to notice in the territories or at least the waning territories that were you know in your backyard and across the country? Well, I, I could kind of see. The see what was the, see the future and and, and and I guess is a way to good to put it. Uh, once once Vince got the national television, uh, it was it was a matter of time. Had it not been Vince, had it been someone else, uh, I did have the opportunity. Uh, I had some people that were talking to me with Continental. Uh, we were we had a rocking territory. We had tremendous talent. We were doing great business and we were being sold to Saudi Arabia to Qatar to the Arab Emirates we were our program was being sold in the Middle East and the same people that were selling our program were trying to talk me into they said NBC is looking for for somebody uh, I didn't want to go and 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 take that opportunity and I, probably in the, now I think looking back at it, I think I could have really saved so many wrestling organizations like Vince's if I had have done it. But I was doing very well, I, and I was part of the NWA, and I felt like if I went in there and started doing a national television show, that I was going to have a lot of friends and fellow promoters that were going to not trust me, and uh, and there would be problems for me down the road. And I think what happened is when Vince got his hands on it, he really, he wasn't a part of the NWA. His dad, I really respected senior. Uh, Vince senior was great. Uh, he booked me many times, uh, Philadelphia, uh, Madison square garden. He liked me and, uh, and I admired him. He was a great guy, but, when Junior got it, I think Junior didn't have the respect I had for all those hardworking uh, Verns. 
a lot of people like Vern. I mean, you had Vern and you had the, the, the Von Erics in Dallas and you had big guys that had been in it for a long time. Roy Shire in San Francisco, uh, just the names just keep, you know, everybody had paid their dues and they were all letting everybody else be. There was kind of, uh, a, without the contracts, there was a, there was a respect that we had for each other. And Vince never had that respect. And Vince just got that opportunity and he did what anybody that would have had that opportunity and had gone that direction did. He just decided he wanted it all and he was able to put others out of business. Now, he did that in a, and to me, a most despicable manner. He bought, ter- he bought talent from, from big time territories and then came back and ran shows against them in their big cities with their talent that they had built. That, to me, I thought was disgusting. I thought that was the, probably the worst part of it. Uh, the greed is one thing, but when you do it in a manner like that, it was really, and that's what, uh, it. I saw the beginning of the end when someone got the national television. Uh, also, Cable was being developed and it was becoming stronger and it made sense that people were going to be able to see a lot of different programs. Now, had everybody cooperated with one another and stayed and done their thing in the parts of the country that they were in, I think it would have been a wonderful thing. That national program had someone else gotten that opportunity and gone out there and gone to Vince as an example and said, Vince, I have a national show, but I don't want it to be my show. I want it to be all of our show. I want to showcase your talent. I want to showcase uh, Fritz's talents. I want to showcase Florida talents. I want to put continental talent on there. Um, And it could have been a different business today. Now, uh, and I and I say this all the time, and I probably you know I'm I'm not going to be Vince's best friend because I believe that wrestling could look a lot different today than what it looks, and I believe it would be a lot stronger and a lot better product than what it is today. And case in point, house shows make them matter. They would they probably would have mattered in your parallel universe of if you were able to have uh, all these promoters together. Nowadays, it's just uh, the house shows are just some filler in between the television. Where it used to be, you know, in the early days, you had that television show to to sell and to get the people out to the arena, get those tickets bought, fill those seats. Now it's become the television vehicle. So now it's like, hey, we get a crowd, we get a crowd. It doesn't seem to be as much of a dedication to pushing the house shows because they're just kind of like also rants. Nobody really cares. You know, there's no significance to them. It's because you look at it. He's got the whole United States. So, so, you know, how many house shows can you run? You know, I mean. Uh, when, back in the old days, you know, people say, boy, the WWE is so hugely successful, but I say, bull, that, that's not true because if you think about all the towns that were being run across America, like you're talking about on a nightly basis, 
night after night after night. And in, on a Friday night, you might have, there were 20 territories, and they were all running big towns on Friday and Saturday nights. They would draw more money on a Friday and Saturday night across the country than Vince will ever think about drawing in his day and time. I mean, there's, and not only did people's wrestling disappear that they were really into, but they've they've lost them forever. They don't have the same product anymore. It's not the same style of wrestling anymore that it was back in in Vern's day, uh, in my day, in my dad's day. Certainly not in my granddad's day when a lot of them were shooters. You know, it's a totally different product nowadays, and it's I don't watch it. Uh, I don't. I'm not interested in it. Uh, I don't, uh, I, I feel it, it hurts me. It kind of hurts me because my family devoted their life to the sport. It hurts me to see where it is today. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing with McMahon too, uh, with his expansion, uh, also we talked about the, ter- the territories going out, but what went with it too. And McMahon was, I guess, more than happy to get rid of it because he, you know, it helped him out financially and it avoided some legal loopholes was basically cutting the cord from kayfabe. I mean, this was something the boys had, had, had kept secret. This was the, something these guys had fought hard to, to maintain the identities with this kayfabe. And then it just completely, it's sports entertainment now. That was one of the, uh, the either the rabbit that got out of the hat or Pandora that got out of the box because those were some of the signs that this was a, a different different animal as we went into the '90s with pro wrestling. Well, you you watch it nowadays, and it's you know it's pretty darned obvious uh, in most cases. Uh, pretty quickly, it's like uh, it's like squeezing the toothpaste out of the tube, and you can't get it back in there. You know, it's not going to happen again. And some people, people ask me the question, they, they ask me this question on Studcast and things like that about, do you think it'll ever come back? And I say, no, I don't believe it will ever come back unless, unless someone gets in control of it and they go back to shooting. Now, if they go back to shooting, I think they'll bury Vince, but, uh, it's, uh, that's hard to find shooting wrestlers and and when you shoot and you're a wrestler and you're shooting you get hurt and and you're not able to wrestle four or five nights a week you're not able to do the things that that uh you you're not going to last very long because your health isn't going to it isn't going to uh isn't going to be there for you but that to me it's the only revival for wrestling that i can see is going back to shooting and actually having people having real matches and uh that would i think that could take it back to where it was but it's certainly not going to go there vince doesn't want to go there and by you know he avoided that uh those athletic commission taxes by saying you know it's just entertainment it's just a show but god that's a that's a major sacrifice for someone that that uh, respected the sport like uh, i do and my dad and my grandfather I think he lacked respect for what everybody had put into that business for all their lives. 
I want to take a quick detour back because you mentioned Madison Square Garden and you mentioned working in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. I just want to know, uh, who did you work with uh, when you went up to MSG, up to New York, as uh, the pro wrestling business refers to it as? And what was uh, the atmosphere like in the locker room? Because you're coming from one territory to another, to the to the Mecca Arena, Madison Square Garden, working, working a big show up there. What was that like, uh, both in the locker room and dealing with a different crowd, the New York City crowd? Like the Philadelphia crowd, they can, they can be a bit rabid, but what was it like working for them as com- uh, compared to working with the Southern crowds or working overseas through, throughout your career? Let's just talk about your Madison Square Garden uh, East Coast experience with uh, Vince Sr. That's, that's a good question. Uh, I really enjoyed working in Madison Square Garden. Uh, I mean, it's every person's dream. If you're a wrestler, an athlete, of doing anything in Madison Square Garden, it's a, it's a, it's a big honor. Uh, I wrestled in Madison Square Garden uh, against, and you won't even know the name, probably, Frank Valois. Have you ever heard of Frank Valois? That name is familiar, and, and, and I'm. I, I, tell, hey, tell, please tell us. I'll tell you who Frank Valois was. When Andre the Giant came here, he's French, and he could not speak the language. And they made Frank Valois. And I assume Frank probably came from Montreal or someplace that had that French background. Uh, and he, he, spoke in, he spoke French. So he was Andre's interpreter for probably the first two years that Andre was here in America. Andre is oh, one of my greatest personal friends. I loved Andre the Giant. He was such a fabulous guy. And I went to New York, and I, and I didn't know who I was booked against. And I see Frank Valois, and it just like, I'm thinking, gosh, of all the people, I didn't even know Frank Valois wrestled, to be honest with you. I thought he was just an interpreter because the first time I met him, he came to Florida. Uh, so, but what we did is, this is, this is a little bit of history, too. Uh, Vince Sr. had New York. He was in New York City. All along the eastern seaboard there, he had television stations that wanted to put on other programs. Now, he was very concerned about somebody coming in and competing with him, like most wrestling promoters were back in those days. So he had a great relationship with Eddie Graham in Florida. I was in Florida in the early 70s as a young guy. In 73, 74, I was becoming a pretty good. I was becoming, I was doing a lot of matches in St. Louis and home of the NWA, Sam Muchnick. I was becoming a pretty big star and Eddie worked a deal with Vince Sr. and sent the Florida Championship Wrestling Show with Gordon Soley to into New York. Now, that was the very best wrestling show in America at that time. I'm firmly convinced. Great talent. Gordon was fabulous. That program went in there and set New York on fire. So what happened is Vince saw that it was becoming bigger than his own show. And Vince first said, let me take some of your talent and bring them into Madison Square Garden as an example and and show them, showcase them. You know, and it made it feel like he was doing it for you as, as a wrestler. I have my favor. I'm going to book in Madison Square Garden. But when I left that dressing room and went out there, I was expecting no no reaction. I got a tremendous ovation because they had been watching that wrestling, that Florida Championship Wrestling Show. And uh, it scared Vince. It got so big that Vince Sr. 
asked Eddie to take it off. He said, I, I, I don't want it on anymore. He didn't tell Eddie, but I'm pretty darn sure he took it off because he saw it eclipsing his own business because the guys out of Florida, you had the Jack Briscoes and the Dusty Rhodes and the just tremendous Tim Woods and oh, just fabulous wrestlers down there in Florida. Uh, and, and, you know, Vince had always senior, always liked the big guys, the gorilla monsoons and the, and the big, huge guys. Now those guys, those guys are great. I'm not saying they weren't great, but they could not do what, what those 230 and 200 and 220 and 240 pound guys could do. They could not give you those type of matches. And it would, it overshadowed what was happening for him up there in New York. So that's a little decent history. I, you know, when when people start talking these type of things to me, I, a lot of stuff comes in my mind that I hadn't thought of in a long time. But that's that's where I went up there, and there was a guy in that locker room that night in Madison Square Garden who had been a not only a personal friend of mine, he had spent a lot of time with me, trained me some wrestling. He played basketball with me. He played football with me. He did all kinds of different things with me when I was in high school. And uh, that was uh, Jay Strongbow, Joe Scarpa. Wow. You know, he's in that dressing room and I went in there. I hadn't seen him in three years. When I saw him last, I was a very green guy. It was my first year in the business. I go in there three years, almost four years later. I'm becoming a star. And, uh, and Joe and I had one of the biggest hugs I ever had with a guy. I missed that guy so much. I loved that guy. He was an amazing guy. And he was his top star. He was the main event that night, Joe Scarpa. And I wrestled Frank Valois on that same card. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't uh, about a few years later that the uh, Eddie Graham, uh, Vince McMahon Sr., Florida to New York Pipeline uh, was working once again in the form of a guy from our state of Minnesota, uh, we're talking about a guy who worked in Florida for a spell as well as St. Louis, uh, Bob Backlund. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Great wrestler. Great wrestler. Great talent. And uh, I never, Bob, I was gone from Florida. I left Florida in 74, uh, late 74, and bought my first wrestling company, Knoxville, Tennessee, and started my first wrestling company, started to be a promoter. Uh, my granddad and my dad had always been wrestlers and promoters. And, you know, I was pretty young. I, you learn at a pretty young age when you're in that, when the wrestling business that wrestlers make great money, but the promoters are who really make the big money. And that's where I set my sights from the very beginning. I want to not only be a star wrestler, I want to be a promoter as well. And so I left there about 74 and then Backlund started coming in. There was a lot of a lot of exchange of talent, and that exchange of talent took place during that time when Florida's TV was up in there. Made sense for Vince to take advantage of that, and uh, and it worked well, worked well for him. Uh, but I think he got scared in the end that geez, these 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 guys are are better than my own guys, and uh, and their booker their booking is better, and their their matches are better. Uh, so it it was a it was a different deal. Uh, and junior, junior is, you know, you're a product kind of, I believe, of, of who your father is and who your grandfather is. You've seen it. You have a way. You want to do it kind of like your dad did it. You want to do it like your granddad did it, in my case. And uh, and Vince wants to do it like his dad did it. And I understand that. Uh, I just wished he had have uh, kept it, kept it 
quiet about uh, a whole lot of what's going on. And uh, and it, we would, it would have been better for so many thousands of, if you think about all the wrestlers that, that their careers died in the late 80s and, and all the fans who lost their wrestling in the 80s, it never came back. They get it every once in a while now, maybe once every three months, once every year, they get a live match, uh, but it's not the same product. Uh, it's just, a, it's a sad situation. And that's why it's so nice to have uh, places where we can talk old school wrestling, whether it's on Wrestling Memories or on the, the Studcast podcast. Uh, it, it's just a great place to remember. And it's good that there are some of these shows out there that do respect the history of pro wrestling. And I have to bring up one more Minnesota boy. And you talked about him briefly here as far as uh, Florida television. This man was synonymous with Florida television as well as uh, his work in the South for Continental and also for, uh, of course, Georgia Championship Wrestling. I want to talk about another Minnesota boy, Gordon Soley. Your memories of Gordon here as we get close to wrapping up today. Oh, gosh. I love Gordon Soley. I just, I, I truly love Gordon Soley. Uh, I, I, I play basketball at the University of Miami. Uh, out of high school. And, and when I came and started wrestling there, Gordon used to say that on every broadcast. He's a, he was a basketball player at the university of Miami. We were in Miami. Uh, when I started my first wrestling program, I wanted Gordon to be my commentator. I had, he wasn't, when I started my second wrestling company, he was, I went and found Gordon. I said, Gordon, you got to do my show continental. He did every continental wrestling program, uh, was Gordon Soley. In my opinion, he's one of the greatest commentators in the history of the sport and a wonderful, wonderful personal friend of mine. Got a lot of Gordon stories too. You know, we can't go into them, but Gordon and I have had tremendous, tremendous relationship over the years. And uh, I miss Gordon. He's a, he's a great, great guy. I just have to ask, was he still involved with the, the he was connected to racing of some kind down in, uh, in that area down in Florida. Was he still involved with it, doing MC work and other things when you were working with Gordon? It was, when I worked with him, uh, he with through Continental, he was flying into Birmingham. We did our television live in a big building in Birmingham, an arena, live arena show. And uh, we never got the chance to talk much about what he did on the side. Uh, he was still doing, I think, at that point, uh, uh, WCW or uh, the Superstation out of Atlanta. He was busy. He was doing several different common programs, still doing the Florida show. Uh, he was he was working his butt off, and I really never got a chance to talk to him about uh, his racing. Uh, but I'm not surprised. He was a very talented guy and a very hard worker. Great guy, Gordon. As we wrap up today, uh, I want to uh, direct the fans once again to your uh, your website where uh, not only can you pick up the, the, the Studcast, but you can also uh, get more information about you and maybe get a few things uh, that you're selling. Let's let's hear about your website, uh, Mr. Fuller. Okay, it's, uh, it's Tennessee Stud, but it's actually TNSTUD.com. It's very simple. Uh, TNSTUD.com. That's the website. I'm going to be on iTunes probably within the next two weeks. I've got a company now to distribute my program, and they're getting me on iTunes. You'll be able to reach my program on other places, but you can go there for the Studcast. The website is brand new. 
I'm pretty proud of it. It's not a bad, it's not a bad website. Uh, and it's got information, biographies, uh, it's got gallery, it's got uh, stud stores not open yet, but it will be within the next two or three weeks. And you'll be able to get all types of souvenirs and things off the stud store there. Uh, but it's, uh, I'm really enjoying it. The stud cast is just roaring. I never dreamed it's going to do the type of numbers it's already doing. And people are just, it's pretty remarkable the comments I'm getting, not just from those people that listen to it, but from other wrestlers and other podcast people that I do their shows. They're just blown away. They're like, wow, they, you know, you're, they all say you're going to be one of the biggest ever. You know, and I don't know that that's true, uh, but I sure uh, I'm enjoying it very much. And, you know, I've enjoyed your show today here. I've enjoyed the opportunity. I don't get speak very often to people way up there where you are. And I hope they will take a look at my my website and uh, look me up and take a listen to a studcast or two. And I believe I've got something that's pretty unique for podcasts. And I have to wholeheartedly, again, agree with you, uh, Stud. It's been a wonderful hour talking with you. Thank you so much for uh, taking that time out of your schedule. I mean, you're recording these wonderful stud casts, and the fans are going to be keep are going to keep on embracing it. I have a feeling, and it's just great to have. Like I mentioned, you're one of the most interesting raconteurs to come along in some time. And like I said, like Austin Idol and yourself, it's great to have your voices back on telling these stories. It's history, man, and it's fun. Well, great. I really appreciate it, and it's been my pleasure. Uh, y'all keep warm up there in a few months. I know <laughs> it's going to get a little chilly for you again, but uh, having been up there a few times, y'all handle it very well. I'm an old Southern boy. It's difficult for me, but keep yourself warm up there. Mm -hmm. It's called strong liquor. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. For Rasslin Memories and the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, I'm Glenn Broggett signing off. So long for now.